Today's episode is sponsored by the NBA and their quest to advance the game of basketball, grow the community, and impact culture. The league celebrates its teams, players, and fans across the past, present, and future as part of its 75th anniversary season. That's game highlights pivotal moments on court and beyond, from iconic plays and arenas to the impact players have in the community. That's the NBA. That's game. Like in the NBA Finals when the Bucks had their backs against the wall. Drew Holiday steals the ball, pushes the break. Alley hooped to Giannis for an iconic slam. Seals game five and the eventual title. That's the NBA. That's game. This is more than just basketball. It's what connects us all and keeps us coming back for more. That's the NBA. That's game. Welcome to the podcast. I am Joe Poznanski and uh, could not be more excited uh, for the for the podcast this week. Uh, a little later on, I'll talk to my dear friend, the president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, Bob Kendrick. Uh, we talk a little bit about uh, some of the sad losses we've had lately. Joe Morgan, uh, Bob Gibson, Lou Brock. Uh, and, and but we talk other fun, happy things, too. But but before we even get to all that. I could not be more excited about the guest uh, this week. Uh, I I will read his his credentials first. Joe Thomas is an NFL Network analyst. You can follow him on Twitter at Joe Thomas seventy three. Uh, you can see Joe throughout the season on NFL Network's Game Day Kickoff Thursdays at six p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, but much more significantly for me, Joe Thomas, one of the great. Uh, offensive lineman in the game's history and one of the great Cleveland Browns in history. So we get to talk Cleveland Browns on this show. Joe, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, this is going to be this will be a lot of fun because the Browns are a lot of fun. So it's it's going to be it's going to be awesome to to talk about uh, a team that suddenly seems to be uh, putting it all together. So uh, before we get to that, um, let's talk a little bit about about you and and what you're doing you've got all sorts of stuff going on uh with with the nfl network and and uh doing all sorts of other things why don't you kind of fill us in a little bit i mean it's been a couple of years now since you've been in the league what what is what's life been like for you yeah life is pretty good i I can't complain too much um my main gig is uh as a dad now which is kind of fun because you know for 11 years in the NFL, you always kind of put your family on the back burner, unfortunately for them uh, and you a little bit because you're so focused on trying to be the best version of yourself on Sundays that you possibly can. And that takes a lot of time during the week, you know, a lot of early mornings and late nights and not many days off during a football season. And so when I retired, I wanted to make sure that I was going to make the kids and, and the wife uh, the priority. And so there was going to be no more, Hey, sorry, I can't make it because I've got to go work the football (laughs) stuff. Right. Um, and so that was my priority, but I also knew I wanted to do something productive. I wanted to have something that got me out of bed in the morning and got me excited. Like it did when I was playing in the NFL. And so I kind of stumbled upon the NFL analyst gig and uh, ended up taking a job with the NFL network, like you guys mentioned. And I've been working the Thursday night football games for, this is my third year on and off, uh, right. my second year full-time 
doing that with Michael Irvin and Steve Smith and Colleen Wolf. And I really enjoyed that because it kind of keeps me close to the NFL. Um, but it doesn't have the same time requirements that coaching would, which is kind of like the other option of, Hey, you want to stay in the game? You either got to be an analyst or you got to be a coach and uh, an analyst just fit a lot better for me. So I still get some of the excitement of game day and preparation like I used to when I was playing, but uh, also I do get days off, which is pretty nice considering uh, the coaching world has like zero days off, even in the off season. It's a pretty crazy lifestyle. Well, for you, it was always, you were always going to try to stay around the game then. I mean, it wasn't a question of, of, you know, I mean, you were, you were such a great player and not, not only such a great player, but a player who was there, obviously you had the, the streak for, for, you know, the longest consecutive, uh, you know, uh, I guess snaps streak. Uh, you were always there, always playing. Uh, so at the end of this, it wasn't there wasn't any thought like I had enough, moving on, go to something else. For you, you you really loved the game. You wanted to stay around the game. Yeah, I've always loved football. I I, I wouldn't say I always knew I wanted to be in football when I retired. But if you think about it like this, like most people spend their twenties honing their craft, doing whatever they're going to do and no work until they're 70 years old. And so you spend, you know, the, the decade in your twenties kind of becoming good at some craft. Sure. Well, if you're in the NFL, you're basically honing your skills of football and you're becoming a master, a PhD in football. Um, and so to just walk away from that while people do it, it's tough because you've spent a good portion of your adult life becoming great at understanding the game of football yeah, uh, and to go do something else, you'd have to basically start from day one. And so, yeah, I'm 35 years old right now. I retired at 33. Uh, it would have been challenging to say the least to go be an intern and in some <laughs> other profession with a bunch of other millennials, 22 year olds. Right. Uh, and you know, for, for the most part, I, I still love football. And um, so I think, I think, it would have had to be something that wasn't on my radar at all had I not decided to continue in the, in the football world. Yeah. I mean, it's something I, you know, I write about all the time talking to athletes across the board, but you're hundred percent right. I mean, here you, here you are, you've spent forgetting the time in college and high school building up just in the professional ranks, you spend, you know, a dozen years really perfecting your craft. And, and if you do that as an accountant or a lawyer or a doctor, now you're entering the sweet spot, right? You've established yourself. You're 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 ready to to start uh, cashing in and 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 you know maybe start your own practice, do whatever it is. But in football, it's over. You know, I mean, it's like that's that's what you had with those twelve years and and all of that knowledge and all of that all of that uh, you know that you've built up over the years. Uh, it's it's hard to know where to put that. So that's I mean I I do, I do find that to be fascinating. You know, when you when you come to that point. I mean, I know there are some that, that walk away and they say, you know, I've just had an, I remember having that conversation with Will Shields where he was like, you know, I, I've just had enough of, of this, but it sounds like for you, it's like, you know, I have all this knowledge. I have all this, this, this tradition and history with the game. Uh, I want to be able to use it still. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it would have been tough to humble yourself and go and become an accountant or a doctor <laughs> or, you know, something else. When you really don't have any background in it, you'd been starting from scratch, from ground zero. Um, and I think that's part of the reason a lot of guys, a lot of former athletes in general, they kind of struggle with direction and they, they struggle after they retire with a lot sure. of things because 
you know, you were at the top of your game, the best in the world at your practice, which was sports. And then now all of a sudden you're going and you're an intern. You're basically the bottom of the rung. And usually in the professional world, you're always kind of climbing that ladder. And if nothing else, you're maybe going horizontally within your field. Um, but to go from being the best in the world to all of a sudden being at the bottom, it's a really hard pill to swallow for a lot of people. And, you know, I've been really fortunate where I didn't have to swallow it, but I got to stay in the NFL, which has been pretty awesome. And I feel extremely fortunate. It's great. It's great. All right. I want to talk about the Browns, but I want to come back to you uh, before we before we finish and kind of ask you a little bit about watching football and, and how you watch it and and try to sort of uh, get in your mindset, because it's, it's one of the things that I find fascinating is that we all as as just fans, we watch football. And I think there's a really you follow the ball, you follow the, you know, the quarterback and the running back and the receivers. And I want to talk to you about what it what fans can do to really fully appreciate just how awesome uh, you guys are on the line. And so I want to talk about that before we're done. But I have to start with the Browns. Let's check in on the Cleveland Browns. How are they doing? I am a lifelong Browns fan, grew up in Cleveland, and uh, and have been writing a Browns diary now for several years. Now do it for The Athletic. and uh, And it's been rough. Uh, to be honest, writing that Browns diary, as you know, you played on quite a few of those teams that, uh, when I was still doing that, uh, at the beginning, uh, but now the four and one, uh, and everything sort of feels like they're pretty good. What do you see when you're looking at the Cleveland Browns right now? I see a team that's getting better each and every week and finding different ways to win, which to me, that's the formula and the recipe for a good team. And a playoff team, and that's usually the type of team that wins the Super Bowl, right? For the first uh, three games of the current win streak that the Browns are on, uh, it was all running the football, and mm-hmm. they were just mashing people, crushing people in the run game, and you know everything else kind of was solid, but it all was really a reflection of how well the Browns were running the football. And then last week against Indy, they had the best rushing defense in the NFL, but the first half, Baker Mayfield was throwing the football all over the field. He yeah. was doing a great job. The defense was getting turnovers, and they weren't able to run the football. And so the, they ended up closing the game out, and they had over 100 yards rushing. But to me, showing that you can win in different ways uh, was such a big step for the Browns that um, I'm really as optimistic as I have been all season. And I'm really excited to see what happens against the Steelers because obviously everybody knows how great the Steelers defense is. And it poses another big test of can you run the football or can you find a different way to win and find production on this offense that is really, really playing lights out right now? Yeah. I mean, you know, obviously, you know, the team is, has struggled immensely over the last, you know, couple of decades, to be honest. And, you know, one of the things that I always thought is as this team was trying to figure out what to do, because there were always talented players. I mean, you you know, you played on teams that had lots of talented players on them. But you, I, I don't know, it's like, it's like the team never, it, it, it's like the team never had a recognizable identity, at least to the outside. I'm sure within, you guys did. But to the outside, it was like, oh, how are the Browns? going to win this week. Now they're just going to go out and they're going to try to play better. But there was never like a sense of, hey, they're going to blow people off the line the way they are now with the run game, or they're never going to, you know, they were going to just force turnovers the way that that this team has been doing this year. That to me has been really fascinating to watch. 
and and I give a lot of credit to a lot of people, including this new coaching staff. But don't you feel like this team does seem to be putting together an identity that that represents, you know, being whatever they need to be that week to win? Yeah, you talk about uh, an identity for a team. That means you have to be good at something. And I'm not yeah. sure if you remember, but <laughs> my last couple of years in the NFL, I won one football game. In I do. Years, so we weren't really good at anything. So it's kind of hard to have that identity. And, you know, you just hoped you could go into the game and the other team would screw up enough for you to yeah. win. You know, this is a, a totally different team, and, and you got to say, well, one, first of all, they have really good players at a lot of different positions, and you yes. look at their running back stable, Kareem Hunt and Nick Chubb, and uh, you look at their offensive line, and they're probably going to have three pro bowlers, maybe four. I mean, they're loaded. Uh, great tight ends that can block, they can catch. Obviously, everybody knows about Odell Beckham and um, Jarvis Landry, and Baker Mayfield's playing some good football right now. So they've got great talent. But also, I think Kevin Stefanski brings a system – that fits with what that talent does there at the best, right? So Baker Mayfield is a short quarterback. That's not a secret. He's um, not proficient at throwing from in the pocket nope. because in order to do that as a short quarterback, you have to throw to spaces that you can't see because the yeah. guys are just too tall. And that requires timing and experience like a Drew Brees, right? Drew is just throwing the football over the field um, even though he's short and he can't see, but because he's played in that offense – with Sean Payton and those receivers for a long time. So he's just thrown to spots based yeah. on the coverage. But what Baker does really, really well is he throws on the move. He's a very accurate passer when he's running to his right and his left, which is very unique. There's only a handful of guys in the NFL that can run to their weak hand and throw across their body. You know, think of guys like Patrick Mahomes, Russell Wilson, Josh right. Allen. Uh, Baker Mayfield does that. And Kevin Stefanski brings in an offense that features a lot of bootleg, a lot of play action, a lot of getting Baker Mayfield out of the pocket, give him uh, one or two receiver reads. And Baker's been really good at that. And then you kind of couple that with a good running game and uh, an offensive line that's athletic and big and fast, and they can run that outside zone scheme, which couples really well with a play-action passing scheme. And, I mean, they, they've got a formula for success on offense. And, and so I think what they do and the coaching that they're getting is just really – fitting well with the personnel that they have. And it's, it's fun to watch. I mean, as, as a fan, you gotta, just like I am, you gotta look at that and go, man, this is just fun to sit back and just watch the magic happen. And you can see how everything on offense, it just fits together and how yes. it puts defenses in such a bind because they don't know if it's a run. They don't know if it's a pass. They don't know if it's a play action. <laughs> and you can see their, their heads spinning as the Browns offense is moving the ball down the field. Yeah, you know, as a fan, I think the the thing that you're always asking for is when when this team runs into issues, when this team runs into things that they don't do well, that they figure ways around. Because obviously every team has flaws. And I, to me, you bringing up Baker Mayfield has been such a big part of what I've been seeing, what I've been writing about with this team. Baker Mayfield from the pocket is ordinary at best i mean you know he 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 is smaller so i think that there's some issues there his his accuracy from the from the pocket is is so so uh you know he 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 sort of is a little bit yeah i don't know if he's jumpy or whatever the case may be but when you're watching him in the pocket you don't feel that confidence but on the move whether it's going left or right like you say he's good like he's like he's a he's a well above average quarterback when you get him out in space and I think you know that's 
that to figure that out and not just know that to be true, but to build a system around that. I mean, frankly, I think as Browns fans, I think that's what what people have been waiting for forever is just going, hey, this is a team that look, whether they beat the Steelers or don't beat the Steelers, you got to feel confident now that they're going to go in with a game plan that can work, you know? Yeah, Baker Mayfield, he's a gunslinger. His mentality is like that on the field and off the field. But when you watch him on the field, he does his best work when he's outside the pocket and he's able to kind of avoid the rush and his receivers have an extra click to get down the field, to get open. And he just throws well when he's outside the pocket. Um, and, And I think that just fits with everything that they do. And it's just fun to watch his maturation because I think, he right now is doing a great job throwing outside the pocket and that's buying him time to learn the details of playing inside the pocket and throwing from inside the pocket, reading the defense, reading the coverage, going through your progressions, changing the plays. Like that's stuff that takes a long time in the NFL to get good at. And Baker just doesn't have that experience because he's played with four offensive coordinators in three years in the NFL. And so I think, Right now, he's in just a great situation because he's able to lean on what he does well as he's learning to get a little bit better at some of those weaknesses. Yeah. And now, you you know from being in the middle of it, what is Cleveland like with a football team that is playing good football like this? <laughs> well, you know, I lived there for 12 years. Yes. And yes. Cleveland is always all football all the time. Even when all the Cavs the are running the championship and the Browns, we were in the toilet, like, People still only wanted to talk about the Browns. It's just such a football town. And whether they were winning or losing, people were talking. Like, you go through the airport, the shoeshine guy is talking Browns. Like, even if it's March, right? Because they're probably talking draft at that point. And that has been, like, the Super Bowl for Browns fans for a long time. But now it's just so exciting in and around in Cleveland because there's a team that they can be proud of. They can be excited about. You can talk about and not talk about in a – self-deprecating manner you can actually say like this is a team that we have a chance every single week like we're going to Heinz Field this weekend to play the Steelers and like you can feel good and not be worried about how you're going to feel after a game uh and so I think the pride that this team has given the city right now is something that the Browns have not had for a long time well and it's and it and there's a hope there you know I mean and you, you know from from there always was going into a season no matter what this sense of hope and, and, and then, you know, the, the, the losses would start to pile up and by October, by November, it's like, Oh, okay. Well, not, not this year again, you know? And, and this time around, I mean, it's like people can feel free to hope again, because I mean, this, this doesn't feel like any sort of fluke. This feels like this is a good football team, you know, particularly on the offensive side, but obviously the way miles Garrett is playing on defense and, and the way that they're, forcing turnovers and, and not giving up, you know, they're giving up a lot of yards, but not necessarily a lot of points. Uh, I mean, this, this feels like a team that can, that can take this all throughout the season, I guess. Yeah. This team has the makings of a championship team. I'm, I'm not saying I'm betting that they're going to win the Super Bowl right now. I mean, no. I'm a homer and I'm biased clearly, but I'm not saying they're the favorites to win the Super Bowl, but if you look at where they are and kind of the trend line that they're headed on, I think, we know they're going to be able to run the football all season. They just have a great offensive line, great running backs, great scheme, great tight ends. Uh, We feel pretty good about their play action passing. They've got great receivers. That's what Baker does best. That's what Kevin Stefanski's comfort zone is calling play action passes, 
first and second down. They've got a great pass rush as long as those guys can stay healthy. Obviously, Miles Garrett is uh, in the player of the year category on yeah. defense right yeah. now with the way he's sacking the quarterbacks and he's forcing fumbles and he's being disruptive in the run game. Um, the big question mark had kind of been, especially early in the season, was the secondary. It was the pass yeah. defense. They had struggled yeah. a little bit, especially earlier on in the season. They had a bunch of injuries and they were kind of trying to figure themselves out. But they've gotten better each week. Uh, in in the secondary with coverage, they're getting guys back healthy. Denzel Ward is playing great football right now, and they're taking the football away. Like they are, I think they lead the NFL right now in takeaways. I think they've gotten twelve so far, and mm-hmm. they're in the top five in points off those takeaways. And so, you look at formulas historically for success in the NFL: run the ball, play good defense, sack the quarterback, but more than anything, win the turnover battle. The Browns are doing that. And they're continuing to improve on their weakness. Like we talked about Baker Mayfield throwing in the pocket, he gets better every week. Their secondary and pass coverage getting better every single week. And so, you know, you keep looking at that trend and I know they're in the AFC North, which is a really, really tough division right now with three teams with four wins. Um, but uh, it's, it's got to feel pretty good if you're a Browns fan about just the direction they're headed and the chances of this really potentially being our season. Yeah, it's it's really exciting. All right, before I ask you my the final question, so who else who else are you looking at right now in the NFL? Who who has thoroughly impressed you in the first sort of, I guess a little bit more than a quarter of the season, almost a third of the season? Who have you looked at and gone, yeah? I mean, obviously the Chiefs are the Chiefs, and and even after the loss, I mean that they're they're still awfully good. But who who do you like out there? Who has really impressed you? Yeah, obviously the Chiefs, that, that's everybody's favorite going into the season, and they've looked really good the whole year, um, last week uh, notwithstanding. Um, but the team that I really like, and I'm, I'm living in Wisconsin, so I get a lot of Packers coverage, but yeah. the Packers have looked incredible uh, <laughs> this season. Scoring points, Aaron Rodgers is playing the best football of his career. Their defense has been pretty good. They're running the ball really well. Uh, um Matt LaFleur, head coach in Green Bay, has really done a nice job kind of blending what Aaron Rodgers loved when he took over and what Matt LaFleur loved and was really good at. And you have this high potent offense right now of kind of a best of. Remember like those mixtapes you get, you'd make like the best of whatever was on the radio at the time when we were younger. (laughs) Like right now you've got a Green Bay Packers mixtape of Matt LaFleur outside zone play action passing concepts that he brought from the Tennessee Titans and Aaron Rodgers concepts from his Mike McCarthy days. And it's just working. And uh, that's a very scary team. I would say Um, when you have the talent that they have and you have Aaron Rodgers who's motivated because they just drafted Jordan Love in the offseason in the first round. Um, But you also have a scheme that really fits them pretty well. So Packers are are definitely a team that that kind of uh, would make me nervous if I was in the NFC. But also, you know, another NFC team that's been really outstanding and it's because of their quarterback is uh, the Seahawks, right? Russell Wilson, MVP candidate, like always. But he just seems to be elevating the play of everybody around him. And and I and I'm not even talking about only the offense. I'm talking the defense. Just what Russell Wilson does, his ability to extend plays, complete passes, control the ball. It gives that Seahawks defense, which kind of thrives on effort and intensity and hustle and flying around and tackling uh the, the, the hawk tackle, like swarming to the football, like that type of defense that they play is exhausting, especially if you have to be on the field for a lot of snaps. 
but Russell Wilson, his ball control, his completion percentage, it just goes hand in hand with what they do on defense so well that he elevates everybody on that team so much that, you know, if, if you're voting for an MVP right now, I know that there's a lot of guys that should have their hat in that ring, but I, I think Russell Wilson has got to be the leader in my clubhouse. The, the numbers those two guys are putting up. I mean, Rod, you talk about Aaron Rodgers. I mean, here's a guy that's going to the Hall of Fame, was before the season began, was probably five years ago. I mean, he, he, he's, he's been a, a dominant force for, for years and years and years. I mean, you look, he's, he's completing 71% of his passes, hasn't thrown a pick all year, and then you go to to, uh, to, to Seattle and look at Russell Wilson, and he's completing 73% of his passes, already has 19 touchdowns. I mean, the offensive numbers are so crazy. Do you like this kind of football? Do you like watching like these these guys just, I mean, it's, it's the... It's, it's it's absolutely incredible. I mean, obviously, every record is going to probably get broken uh, when it comes to quarterback ratings and 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 touchdown interceptions and all these other things. Is this? Do you love it? I mean, have these guys just perfected it? I don't know anybody that I've talked to yet that said, "Boy, I really hate watching all these <laughs> points being scored in the NFL." Uh, it's so fun because it's the evolution of the offense. You know, evolution. Yeah in the game of football has gone on forever and it's natural. And a lot of times it does trickle up, which is interesting versus the, the opposite. But um, football coaches, especially guys at the peak of their game, you know, they, they learned how to do things from somebody else who was successful. And then they've, they tried those things and they were successful themselves. And so they've been very resistant to change over time, but um, in the high school level and then the college level, like there's a lot more willingness to try new things and, they brought us the RPOs and yeah. a lot of like the stuff that you're seeing in the NFL now, where 20 years ago, we thought that a quarterback had to be a big stiff guy that stood in the pocket and just threw the football with a big arm. And now we're understanding, like if you make defenses defend the field horizontally and make them defend every blade of the grass and you got a quarterback who's like a really good athlete who all of yeah. a sudden can make a good linebacker miss run outside the pocket extend the play and then throw the ball 70 yards down the field. Like who would have thought that's going to produce more offense than the guy that just stands in a spot and lets everybody pass rush him. So I think it's just been fun watching the evolution of the game from a play scheme standpoint, but also what you're looking for at each position. And the fact that we've got these quarterbacks that are super athletes like Lamar Jackson and Russell Wilson and Josh Allen. And, you know, even Baker Mayfield, you wouldn't, think he's going to win a lot of foot races but he's a pretty good athlete that he's a pretty good has athlete. a lot of shiftiness that he can make guys miss and, and i think that's just the direction the game is headed and if you're a defender it's just hard to cover guys for a long time and we got a quarterback that's in the backfield he's making people miss he's extending plays it's hard to cover a receiver for five seconds and you know especially when you got a guy that can deliver the football like a laser 50 yards down the field there's not a lot of separation that a receiver needs to be able to get the football into his hands. And so I, it, it's been fun to watch. And I think that's just going to only continue. You're going to just keep seeing these offensive records crumble with uh, the guys that are playing quarterback right now <laughs> and these schemes that we're developing for them. It's so amazing. I mean, you know, cause I mean, certainly when, when I was younger, when you were younger, you, you had your Randall Cunningham's or your Steve Young's or your Michael Vick's and they just blow your mind. And now it's like, every team's got somebody who's like, like Michael Vick, only bigger and strong. You know what I mean? It's, it's the evolution is absolutely amazing. All right. Yeah. Uh, bef 
No, I was, just gonna, I was just going to go add, ahead, please. I think the, yeah. the exciting change that we've seen since the Vic and Cun Cunningham days is back in those days, it was either a run or a pass. Like there was right. nobody going, hey, this play could be a run or a pass based on how the defense plays it. Yeah. And so you had, all right, Michael Vick, he's going to run on this one. I remember my uh, teammate, uh, Kevin Schaefer, came from the Falcons as a rookie. He was one of the tackles for the Browns. And he was uh, – he. he got signed a big free agent contract with the Browns because of blocking for Michael Vick. And he would say like, Hey, we had certain plays where it looked like a pass, but they would tell me to like get beat inside. And then after two and a half clicks, Vick would wow. know it's coming and he'd roll out to the outside <laughs> and, and then it was a run. Um, but there was no such thing as a run pass option back then. And now giving these guys the ability to basically take whatever the defense gives you extend a play with your feet or throw the football. Um, it just makes it so hard on a defense. It, they're just constantly in a bind and there's really not a, a good defense out there for, for a lot of this stuff that they're running. And that's part of the reason that, that it's been so much more successful than even back when Vic was playing in the early two thousands. That's so true. What a, I mean, what a great point. I mean, and by the way, that's so fun to me that, that, uh, that there were pass plays that basically for Michael Vick were really run plays, <laughs> which is, but that was, you know, you're trying to invent ways to take advantage of what Michael Vick is. And now the ways that they, that they have created, I mean, the, you know, what Baltimore has done for Lamar Jackson is just, and what Lamar Jackson has done for Baltimore. I mean, it goes both ways. He's an utterly unique talent but you see it every game. It's it's. I mean, he he can absolutely on the same play run for forty yards or throw it sixty yards downfield. I mean, it's just how do you beat that? How do you how do you stop that? Yeah, exactly. That's the thing that's keeping defensive coordinators up at <laughs> night right now because there is no defense that I've seen so far to be able to take away these dual threat quarterbacks when they are playing at their best. Absolutely. All right. Before I let you go, I did want to ask you this question about how you watch a game. I mean, you're obviously you're one of the greatest offensive linemen in the history of the game, and and not only uh, great, but but you were there every single down, as I mentioned. You know, you you were you were there, and for for some teams that obviously were not good. I mean, you you were there. You know, in December's when the when the team was you know two and fourteen and 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 one and fifteen, and you were out there and, and fighting for it. So when you're watching a game, how much do you watch your position, the offensive line? And you know, for to I, one of the things that I think about all the time is some of the best and most amazing things that happen on a football field are happening with the offensive line and the defensive line. I mean, that battle, some of the most athletic, extraordinary things, and we kind of miss it unless they show it on replay or somebody happens to mention it in the booth. So how do you watch a football game, and and how would you say like people could watch it to really appreciate more just how extraordinary uh, that battle is between the offensive and defensive lines? <laughs> Uh, I can't even get my wife or my kids to get excited about <laughs> offensive line play. I'm not exactly sure that uh, I'm going to be changing any minds here in this podcast, but um, I will say that when I watch a game, it is nearly impossible for me to not just watch the left tackle. You know, I probably watched 200,000 hours of football film from the film room and oh, all yeah. of it pretty much was focused on watching the left tackle. <laughs> and so that just habit is really hard to overcome. I did the uh, 
Bucks versus Texans game last year with Rich Eisen and uh, Nate Burleson. And, and I was in the color booth and I had to like, I actually wrote myself a note that sat right in front of me on the desk <laughs> that said, watch the safeties, because that's kind of how a game is played and how you can kind of watch a defense and see everything unfold. Because I needed that reminder every play to don't just watch the left tackle, because as much fun as a vertical set and blocking a defensive end is to me, it's not really that exciting <laughs> to everybody else. Uh, and so really the, the game within the game that happens on the offensive line is magnificent and it's ballet. And there's so many details that go into it to be proficient at it, but it's like watching an NBA game and getting really excited about an elbow jump shot. Like, yeah. there's yeah. only so much excitement as, as masterful as it might be. There's only so much excitement that you can get over watching it because when the things go well on the offensive line, it's completely unexciting, right? When they do a great job, there's, there's no quarterback getting hit. There's no yeah. big car crash at the end, right? When the offensive line does a great job, the, the running back has a four yard run and he falls forward for second and six. And so there's just not like that magnificent dunk or explosion that happens at the end of a lot of other plays. And so I, I think it's fun listening to NFL fans talk about offensive line play. And I think the offensive linemen and the play is getting a lot of appreciation and respect finally, because fans that want to have pride and understanding the game of football realize yeah. that like the most challenging and difficult part of understanding football happens in the trenches. I, I remember Kyle Shanahan was our offensive coordinator in 2014 in Cleveland. Mm -hmm. And I remember he, he would, he brought in that great outside zone running scheme. And I, I remember sitting there in training camp and I, I would talk to him and pick his brain because he was the offensive coordinator that I had that understood the run game and coaching offensive linemen better than any of the other offensive coordinators I had. And I had nine offensive coordinators in right. 11 seasons. Most coordinators don't even know how to coach offensive line play. That's why offensive line coaches are usually the highest paid assistants on the staff because it's such a specialty that very few other people understand because it takes so many hours to learn. But I remember talking to Kyle and asking him like, you were a receiver in college and you'd kind of been around quarterbacks and receivers most of your life. Like, why did you take such an interest in first of all, running the football and second of all offensive line play and technique. And he, and he told me directly, he goes, because being a receiver and route concepts are simple. It takes hardly no brain space to learn that stuff. Everybody knows it. He says where the real challenge and detail happens is on the offensive line. Like that is the hardest position to learn to coach. There's the most involved and that's the hardest position on the field to get good at. And he told me that and I was like, you know, you're, you're probably right. Like for me, it was what I've done forever. So to me, sure. receiver stuff sounds more difficult, but as he started coaching us up and as we started learning his scheme throughout the season, I understood that like on offensive line to have a four yard run, you have to have five guys and sometimes seven or eight, including right. the tight end and the running back and the quarterback exactly perfect from a technique and a timing standpoint in order to just gain four yards in the past game. All you got to have is Russell Wilson running around and chucking the ball <laughs> up to DK Metcalf and he got a 70 yard pass and it takes I wouldn't say no ability because it takes great ability, but it doesn't take as much planning and detail. And I think 
for people that love the game to become obsessed with line play is an obsession with detail and nuance. And I think that's why you see a lot of these nerdy NFL guys, myself included, who really just <laughs> fall in love with learning and watching offensive linemen. I think I really think like, obviously, you know, for, for casual fans, if I'm watching the Browns with my daughter, we're not watching the offensive line on every play. Obviously you're watching the ball, you're watching, you know, and television obviously focuses the way it does, but it seems to me like a few times every game that you stop, especially to watch, you know, you talk about a left tackle on a pass play and to watch a left tackle. I mean, these, these defensive ends, obviously, you know, watching a defensive end beat an offensive uh, tackle is, is exciting in its own way, but these, these guys are, they're the most ridiculous athletes on earth in so many ways. I mean, they're, they're, you know, six, five, 270, 280, 290, and they run, you know, faster than, than quarterbacks used to run. And, and, you know, to see how you negate them, depending on how they go, whether, whether they're trying to cut inside, whether they're trying to beat you to the outside. I, I don't know. I mean, it really is ballet. I mean, you don't, you don't, as somebody who just watches, I don't know all the things that go into it, but you can see how difficult it is uh, on a pass play to try to to try to stop a defensive end from from getting at the quarterback. Yeah, left tackles have been one of the highest paid positions in the game outside of quarterback right? for a long time now, and and that's because of a couple things. One, you're protecting the biggest asset the franchise has, which is your quarterback. <laughs> if if I'm the Chiefs' left tackle, Eric Fisher, I'm blocking for Patrick Mahomes, who was worth half a billion dollars. <laughs> right. uh, there's nobody else more crucial to the success of that team than Patrick Mahomes, and that includes the head coach. That includes the general manager. Pretty much everybody else on the team combined isn't as valuable as the quarterback. And so you're yeah. protecting the most valuable asset one, but also as a left tackle, when the play starts, when we walk to the line of scrimmage and I put my hand in the ground, I am now not allowed to move unless you shift, but yeah. you can't do that. And, and on defense, I can take my best pass rusher and I can pick who I want him to go against. So I can mm -hmm. take like the Browns do. I can take miles Garrett and say, okay, that right tackle is really good, but that right guard sucks. So I'm going to pick him up and I'm not going to block, go against the right tackle at all. I'm going to put him over the right guard all game. And he's going to be able to feast because he's going against a crappy player. Or let's take it another step. If I'm Miles Garrett and I'm really powerful and the right tackle I'm supposed to go against is also really strong and powerful. And so my best is also his best, but they've got this left tackle who's kind of skinny. He's a great athlete, but he's not very strong. I'm going to take Miles, who's very strong, and right. I'm going to put him over that left tackle. And now I've got my strength on somebody's weakness. But as a left tackle, because I can't move, I'm stuck with having to be good at everything. Because otherwise, they're just going to put whatever I do bad at right over me the entire game, and I'm going to get my butt whipped. And so it's really challenging to find offensive tackles, or any position for that matter, that just – have very few weaknesses or yeah. any of the weaknesses you have, you're able to overcome in some other manners. And so I think that's part of the reason you get paid so much because it's just rare to find somebody that's good at kind of doing everything that your job involves. It'd be like, you know, the greatest receivers of all time who happen to be the fastest and the biggest and the guys who also can catch the ball the best. Like yeah. it's just hard to find guys that are good at everything that their job entails. Um, and, and, 
additionally, as an offensive lineman, you're judged by the mistakes you make, not the great plays, right? So mm-hmm. it doesn't matter how many pancakes you make, it's how many times you screw up. Uh, and so I think you know, all those things are challenging to find um, in one player. And, and that's why as a left tackle, you know, you just historically, they, they've been paid a lot and they get the most respect um, because of the, the rarity uh, that that position is. Yeah, And what a great point, because I mean, look, if you're uh, a receiver who is smaller you can design a play around him. If you're a receiver that's fast, you can design plays around him. If you're a receiver that catches the ball in traffic, you can design plays around him. You don't have to be good at everything. But as a left tackle, how do you design play? I mean, I guess you can give him help, but other than that, like how can you design plays? You have no idea what the other guy is going to try to do against you except exploit your weakness. Like that's their only thing. So that makes it a little bit tougher, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, it, even a quarterback, when you think, oh, you want a quarterback that's good at everything, like, I don't know if you guys have seen Tom Brady running right now, but that man's <laughs> not winning many foot races on the football field. Uh, Peyton Manning, that, that guy wasn't winning many foot races. Like, even kind of Lamar Jackson when he first got in the NFL. Right. He was the best passer in the world, but he was so good running with the football and extending plays that he became such a weapon. Defenses had to change, and really give him a lot of lanes in the passing game because they were so worried about him running with the football. Now he's obviously a much better passer, but um, I, I, I struggle to come up with another position that there's so much pressure on having very little or no weaknesses uh, like an offensive lineman. Yeah, it's really true. Maybe a corner. I mean, I was yeah, just a corner would literally... be a good one, right? right? But even a corner, like if let's say I'm a shorter corner and I'm really quick and good with my hands, but I don't do a good job matching up against taller receivers. Well, you just put them against your shorter receiver, right? Yeah, I guess like, that's true. You could move you him around move too. on defense, and you don't have that ability on offense like like the defense does. It's a great point. Well, I hope people take a, at least just take a couple of minutes just during any game, just focus just entirely on the left tackle or the right tackle or or the guards, watching the guards pull on on running plays and all the sorts of things. Uh so much fun. Joe Thomas, thank you so much. This has been a blast. Awesome, man. Hey, I really appreciate you guys having me on. I love talking to anybody who's willing to suffer through a few minutes of offensive line chatter. <laughs> always welcome. We'll always talk offensive line here. Thank you. Today's episode is sponsored by the NBA and their quest to advance the game of basketball, grow the community, and impact culture. The league celebrates its teams, players, and fans across the past, present, and future as part of the 75th anniversary season. That's game highlights pivotal moments on court and beyond from iconic plays in arenas to the impact players have in communities. That's the NBA. That's game. It's like game five of the NBA finals where I was lucky enough to be there. Bucks Suns in Milwaukee. I'm sitting kitty corner from Giannis Antetokounmpo as he rises up for that incredible alley-oop. Drew Holiday having stolen the ball from Devin Booker on the other side, found Giannis in transition. Incredible stuff. That's the NBA. That's game. This is more than just basketball. It's what connects us all and keeps us coming back for more. That's the NBA. That's game. Today's episode is sponsored by the NBA and their quest to advance the game of basketball, grow the community, and impact culture. The league celebrates its teams, players, and fans across the past, present, and future as part of its 75th anniversary season. That's Game highlights pivotal moments on court and beyond, from iconic plays and arenas to the impact players have in the community. That's the NBA. That's Game. Like in the NBA Finals when the Bucks had their backs against the wall, Drew Holiday steals the ball, pushes the break, alley-hooped to Giannis for an iconic slam, seals Game 5, and the eventual title. 
That's the NBA. That's game. This is more than just basketball. It's what connects us all and keeps us coming back for more. That's the NBA. That's game. Okay, so we're here with my dear friend, longtime friend, my brother, Bob Kendrick, and uh, and we're going to talk a little bit about, that's going to be a little sad. We're going to start off a little sad, Bob, uh, but... Uh, We'll try to we'll try to pick it up by the end of this thing. We'll we'll talk a little good stuff. But it has been such a crushing year. Yeah. Uh, you know, we just lost Joe Morgan. This in the wake of losing Bob Gibson, in the wake of losing Lou Brock, in the wake of losing Tom Seaver, Whitey Ford, Al Kaline. Uh, we were talking right beforehand. Bob Watson, you know, you forget Bob Watson, Jimmy Wynn, Tony Fernandez, Sweet Lou Johnson. We were talking about him. It's been an extraordinary, I mean, and it started with the loss of Don Larson. This has been such a crushing year for baseball, but let's talk. I want to talk specifically about Joe Morgan because this is, you know, he, he, he just died and, you know, Joe Morgan was such a giant in the game. You know, he was obviously one of the all time greatest players ever, maybe the greatest second baseman who ever played the game. Uh, he was a, a broadcaster who, who, you know, was the broadcaster for, yeah. for years. Right. Yeah. Uh, but he also was a huge friend of the Negro leagues baseball museum. He was a great friend of ours. Um, what do what do you remember most about Joe Morgan? You still are always amazed. The first time I met him, I knew that statue wise, he wasn't that tall. But I think he was even shorter than I had even envisioned. And you yeah. looked at him and say, man, this guy at this size was so great. He dominated at his position. And he was such an integral part of that big red machine, yeah. which is really when I kind of got to know him. And we all emulated the chicken wing thing that he tried. Right. At least we tried to emulate it <laughs> anyway, you know. And, and so the first time I met him, it, for me, it felt like I was meeting a childhood hero. Because I was meeting a childhood hero. Absolutely. But Joe, you know, we say that all the time. You know, I say that every time I'm around Henry Aaron or when I'm around Louis Tion, you know, Joe Morgan, same thing. And and so even though this is part of my job to to associate with these guys, it's still hard to separate yourself from being a baseball fan and, and understanding that you are in the presence of greatness and so all of those times that we spent with Joe were just kind of blessed opportunities. I always enjoyed being around him to see he and Buck interact with yes. one another was just yes. beautiful, man. It was just absolutely beautiful. He, he, you know, it's, it's a shame in, in some ways I always thought that as a broadcaster, you know, of course he was extraordinarily popular and it's, and, and even those is coming out, but of course there was, a huge side of people who who thought Joe was too old fashioned. He didn't, he didn't do the, you know, the current, uh, you know, my, my good friend, Mike Shure, my co-host here, you know, did the fire Joe Morgan uh, and so on and so on. But Joe in those, like when you saw Joe around Buck and saw him around other ballplayers, I got to see him around those, that big red machine. What a, what a joy. I mean, he was a funny you know, he would just he would just get in and and trade insults, and I mean, he was just fun to be around. And and, and I don't know that that always came across like on television. Probably not. Probably not because his understanding of the game was so good on those yeah. broadcasts. Yeah. You know what I admired about him on the broadcast is that you were always going to learn something 
about the game, the interworkings right. of the game. Yes. And you know, you and I experienced it. We sat and watched games with Buck O'Neill. Yeah. Watching a baseball game with Buck O'Neill was different because he always watched it as if he was a manager. Right. And, and, and so he's dissecting everything. And, and more times than not, he was absolutely right in, in what should happen. Even if it didn't happen, <laughs> he was right about what should have happened. And, right. and, and you learn that with Joe Morgan when he was doing the broadcast and, and maybe some that rubbed some wrong. And maybe he you know, was kind of in that that mindset about how the game should be played and whether right. or not the younger athletes were playing it the way that he believed the game should be played. <laughs> right. But the insight was always right on point. And, and so I admired him as a broadcaster. I admired him as a player. And, and like you say, those those times that we spent and just being there with it, he and Buck trading stories and his passion that he had for the Negro Leagues in general, the respect that he had for the Negro Leagues. You know, he wrote his college thesis on the Negro Leagues. So this really, this place meant something to him. Well, and it's important to say that because, you know, I mean, and and uh, nobody's more thrilled than we are about this. But over the last few years, the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum has gotten a new level of, of, of cachet yeah. in the baseball world. But we were there and Joe was there, frankly, when that wasn't true. When well, when this place was struggling and when not just struggling to, you know, to as museums will, but struggling in a way to, to get people to understand why it was so important. And, you know, and that was something that there was Joe Morgan. I, in many ways, at times, I thought he was the most prominent guy out there sort of singing the praises and telling the story of the museum. Oh, no question. No question. And, and it would be Joe that would get in the ear of Frank Robinson. Right. Because they had that kind of respect and appreciation for one another. Sure. And, 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 and the Dave Winfields of the world who all started to make their way here. And we started to see that polar shift from the standpoint of these great players who were now identifying themselves with the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. And I think Joe really embracing their place in this game, yes. understanding that their, their legacy is tied to this story. And, and Joe was right at the center of that. Absolutely. Well, you know, we could talk all day about the extraordinary careers of, of the many, many baseball players who just happened to have died in 2020. I mean, this has been a, a crushing year on so many levels. But one thing that, that I think is really important to say, you have Joe Morgan, you have Lou Brock, you have Bob Gibson. These were the first generation Jackie Robinson people. These were these were that that next generation, right? You know, Bob Gibson comes up late fifties, Lou Brock and and Joe Morgan early sixties, Jimmy Wynn early sixties, same around time. Bob Watson, all of these guys came up. They were not just you know, hey, it was sort of a theoretical thank you, Jackie Robinson. It was a direct line. <laughs> no, it is legitimate. Thank you, Jackie Robinson. That's right. Or in this case, as Buck would say, the players from the Negro Leagues who built that bridge That's right. that they got to cross over. Yeah. And, and, and I think with Joe in particular, that was never lost on him. No. Nor was it lost on Lou Brock. But obviously, Lou was, Buck was a surrogate father right. to Lou Brock. And, and he was a father to Ernie Banks. And, and and so players like that, this place really meant something to them 
because they understood. Again, they understood their place in the game and that it does not happen without these legends of the Negro Leagues building that bridge that they got to cross over. And they were old enough to, to have seen it. Enough. I mean, look, I, you know, I always loved when Joe Morgan would talk about growing up watching Piper Davis. You know, like, I mean, he saw him after the Negro Leagues. He was playing in Oakland when he was growing up there yes. in the minor leagues. Yes. But, but I mean, you're looking, there's a guy who who just got out of the Negro Leagues. I mean, he, yes. he is now in, 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 you know, in professional baseball, white professional baseball, whatever you wanted to call it. But this guy was a legend in the Negro Leagues five years ago, you know? So, I mean, it's a, that is a very direct line oh, for no a guy question. like Joe Morgan. And, yeah. and, and Buck, as you know, tried to sign Bob Gibson. Yes, he that's right. He tried to sign Bob Gibson to the Monarchs, and Gibby went to Creighton to play basketball instead. Yeah. Now, Buck didn't miss too many times, but that's the <laughs> one that got away. That's the one that got away. And Gibson goes on and has a tremendous basketball career yes. at Creighton Place for the Harlem Globetrotters before going to the St. Louis Cardinals and becoming this legendary Hall of Fame pitcher, you know, one of the most competitive athletes, not, not just baseball players, oh, I think one sport. of the most competitive athletes any of all time. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely right. But I can remember you and I talking to to Buck about what the young Bob Gibson was like, and he was like, it was just like what the old Bob Gibson was like, right? He was like, he's like, you saw that level of competitiveness in him when he was in high school, you know, and and when he first saw him pitch. So you know, the the other side of this is obviously we can talk about you know how sad it is, but in, in so many ways, one of the things that that you know, I, I, you always try to find like the, the positives, of course. And in this year with all of these great players and, and you, we should mention again, Tom Seaver and Al Kaline and Whitey Ford, their stories get told again. I mean, I, I know that's so what the Negro Leagues Museum is all about, but that's one thing I've thought about in 2020 is, you know, there are a lot of people who might never have heard of Whitey Ford or Tom Seaver. I mean, these are our childhood. Now, Whitey Ford's a little before even both of us. I yeah, think. yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yeah. but Tom Seaver is smack dab in the middle of our childhood. I, I, smack I want to be dab Tom in Seaver. the middle. Yeah. So I, I want to be Tom Seaver. You know, when I'm when I'm a kid as a pitcher, oddly enough, I'm a Braves fan, a lifelong Braves fan. Right. But I also love the New York Mets. And, <laughs> and, and there was this whole mystique about a guy nicknamed Tom Terrific. Yes. And, and he seemed, Joe, like he put every ounce of energy in every pitch that he yes. made with yes. the dirty knee and the knee dragging the <laughs> ground. And, and so you wanted to emulate that kind of thing. And so I never got to meet Tom, never got to meet Tom, mm. but you felt like you knew him. Sure. You know, I always felt like I knew him. And so, yeah, when he passes, it, it's devastating. And, and, you know, you, you feel a tremendous sense of loss as you do with all these players. And we haven't even talked about the Negro League players who have passed on this year, well, you know, who were mainstays here at this, at this museum. But, you know, what you also do, and I think what you, you just kind of reference is that you also reflect on the great memories that they gave us. Yes. You know, they brought us great joy watching them. So yeah, there is this obviously sense of sorrow for losing these players, but there's also great joy. And when we get a chance to reflect and talk about, what they were able to do. I mentioned that at Lou Brock's funeral services. Yeah. There was something very eerily similar to the way I felt when Buck died and we had his visitation here on 
on Friday, October 13th of 2006. And, and I'm the first person to get here before we open the doors up to the public. And so I went to go have my private moment with Buck. And Joe, I'm, you know, I'm really nervous about this whole thing. I wasn't sure if we were made the right decision to leave the coffin open so that people sure. could say goodbye. And so I go in to say goodbye to Buck and have my private moment. And there was this overwhelming calm that came over me. Yeah. And it was almost like he was saying, oh, Bob, it's going to be okay. Everything's going to be all right. And at that point, it was like, okay, now let's open the doors. Let's do this. <laughs> and it was the same thing. I drove to St. Louis and it, I felt like I was driving under duress. I didn't really, you know, I'm honored to do it, but I didn't really want to do it. I didn't want the circumstances to be having to speak at Lou Brock's funeral services. Right. And I go up, even though, you know, there were others in the church, I go up and, it, and I'm not lying. It was that same overwhelming calm that came over. And then when it was my time to speak, I just kind of got up and spoke from the heart and said the things that I, you know, as I, as I shared to them, you know, here's a man that committed larceny over 700 times, <laughs> you know, over 700 times, 700, some odd times, and, and he's welcome into heaven. And if you can steal that much and get into heaven, there's still a chance for me. <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. It's exactly right. Does this sound familiar? You've got one device that lets you catch the game live, another that lets you stream your favorite shows, you're watching sports highlights on your phone, and you've got your neighbor's best friend's login <laughs> for the good stuff. Well, I want to tell you about a simple way to get all that entertainment you love without the hassle, and a great way to finally get your TV together. It's called Direct TV Stream, and it brings your live TV and on-demand favorites together like never before, so you can watch your favorite sports, movies, and shows all in one place. That means no more juggling remotes and no need to buy another device ever again. And the best part, there's no annual contract. Yes, no annual contract. So get rid of the clutter and the confusion and get your TV together with Direct TV Stream. You can learn more at directtv.com. That's directtv.com. Compatible device required. Content varies by package. Ready to take a trip? Hear about all the must-see places with Thrillist's new series, Get Out of Town. Brought to you by the City Advantage Platinum Select Card. Go from the East Coast to the West and everywhere in between. Like the best spot to grab a drink on the San Antonio Riverwalk. There's a million reasons to get out of town. The only hard part is choosing where to go first. Listen to Get Out of Town with Thrillist everywhere you get podcasts. Brought to you by the City Advantage Platinum Select Card. But, you know, you talk about Lou Brock. Uh, that was someone that you, but both of us, knew even better than, than you know, than the than some of these other. Yeah. He was such a warm, wonderful person to yeah. be around. You know, yeah. just, you, you were never around Lou Brock sad, you know, no, no, matter, no matter what. Because that was Buck. You yeah. know, he and exactly Ernie right. Banks. Ernie Banks, same way. Ernie Buck Banks, same way. spirit. Yes. And, and that day in 2012, when you sat down with Lou Brock here yes. as part of our all-star game ceremonies. What a blast. To have that conversation with him on the art of base stealing. Yes. It was as good as it gets. Yeah. Now, next day, of course, you did Tony Gwynn. And that's as good as it gets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, well, the, the, the wonderful people. And that's what's so, you know, 
to, to sit with Tony Gwynn, and this is all, you know, this is all the wonder of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, to sit with Tony Gwynn to talk about the art of hitting, to sit with Lou Brock to talk about the art of stealing, but to sit with Henry Aaron to talk about just the art of baseball, you know, just what it is, <laughs> what it is to be an icon, uh, to sit with Dave Winfield and, uh, you know, to sit with Ozzie Smith about, you know, the art of, of fielding, you know, this is, this is what makes the play so wonderful. And I do think there is part of me that thinks these guys are going to be around forever. You know, know. there's like, because they still seem so young when you talk to them, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Now Lou was 86 years old. 86 years old. Yeah. I think Gibby was 84. Yep. You know, or something, vice versa, one or the other. But, you know, and so you do. But Buck was almost 95. Yes, he was. And and as I tell people all the time, it's rare that you're surprised when a 94-year-old man dies Right. But everybody was surprised when Buck O'Neill died Absolutely. because he had defied age for so long. The 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 charisma, the youthful exuberance that that exuded from him, and, and so people were surprised. We know that no one's going to live forever, but if someone would, <laughs> it would be Buck O'Neill. <laughs> we used to say all the time. It's all the time because it wasn't. You know, look. I mean, you and I, we would take we would take that life today, right? We've we've, oh, we've talked about this a million times. Oh, we would take man, that life I today. Sign up for ninety four, and that quality <laughs> life. Sign me up. Right sign me now. up right now. But that's what it was. That's what it was, and I think that's what it was. You know, I mean, obviously, Lou and Ernie, I'm, you know, had their issues at the end. You know, like like we all will yep. and do. Um, but they were so young at heart, all of yeah. them. And Buck was the youngest at heart, you know. Yeah. But yeah. but when you talk to Lou Brock, it, you know, and I think this is just an interesting element about certain people. Bob Gibson was the same way. You would talk to Bob Gibson and you could see him on the mound, you know, just staring. It wasn't – there was never a moment you're like, oh, here, here's – who is this, you know, older gentleman? But it's like – while wow, you could watch the years melt off of him, yeah, you know, yeah. you could just watch there he is on the mound and, and, and you're Billy Williams or you're, you're Henry Aaron or you're Willie Mays and he's staring at you and he's going to kill you, you know? And that was, that was the way that those guys carried yeah, themselves. Henry Aaron, Henry Aaron told Dusty Baker, young Dusty Baker with the Braves, of course, and first time facing Gibson and Henry Aaron said, now when you get up to the plate, don't look at it. Don't <laughs> smile at it. Right. You know, don't run too fast. Don't, don't run, run too, too slow. slow. <laughs> <laughs> and and if he hits you, don't charge the man because he's a golden glove boxer. That I just loved yeah. everything about that. And, and poor Dustin, you know, he said, I didn't know what to do. He had a 17-game hitting streak. That streak came to an end that day. <laughs> there was there was also the time that Dusty uh, that they said uh, Dusty saw Bob Gibson. Dusty was with his wife, and they saw Bob Gibson in a restaurant. And uh, Dusty's teammates were like, "Hey, go over and and say hi to him." And he's like, "No, no, no. It's Bob Gibson. You don't you know you don't bother Bob Gibson." And his teammates were like, "No, no. Off the field, he's totally different. He'll be just fine." <laughs> so he brings his wife and says, "Mr. Gibson." And Bob Gibson looks up and he goes, hello, Mrs. Baker, and goes back and starts eating. Doesn't even acknowledge Dusty. Doesn't even acknowledge him. So, you know, it's and and that's really, you know, the wonder is, is that you can sort of remember these guys and tell their stories in 
you know, for those people who are you know, much too young, yeah. you know, and, and it, for us, like, it's hard for us to believe that we're getting old, but we are. We're there now. But for me, it is like something like, oh, you know, everybody remembers Lou Brock. Everybody remembers Tom Seaver. But you've got to be a certain age to remember those guys. And, yeah, and so yeah, it's do. good. It's good to be able to tell the stories. But again. You live that life every single day. Every day. And that's what we do here at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. We keep those who are now gone on alive. We keep their memories and their legacies alive. Yeah. And hopefully we'll keep telling the stories so that people can get a better understanding and get a glimpse into what these athletes were able to do in the tremendous face of great social adversity and how much they love this game. How much they change this game and how you much know, they change it absolutely in so many ways one of my favorite things that you always talk about is not just changing the game in 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 the obvious ways of of segregating the game but bringing elements to this game that were not there before i mean the yeah. stolen base and 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 the bunt and and some of these other things that we've talked about before but there was an exciting style that was yeah. played in the negro leagues that frankly we could use a little more of that we now. We now could. we could. I think that's one of the reasons, Joe, why I'm enjoying watching Tampa. Yes, play. yes, very yeah. good. Point. They they play very close to a style of play that would be Negro Leagues baseball. They play great defense. They are not afraid to move runners over. You know, uh, great pitching. Yeah, you know, guys that can still hit the ball out the ballpark, but they can score with runs in in many different ways. And I think that's why the Negro Leagues were so exciting. We saw it here in Kansas City in 2014 and 2015 exactly right. with Kansas City Royals. And I know I'm old school. I know this. And, <laughs> and, and I know the game is changing and, you know, the analytics, all of this stuff, talking yep. about the home run strikeout thing being okay. And I just don't see how it is. But as I've said on many, many occasions, you don't have to worry about putting a clock on this game if you give me something that I want to see. That's right. If you give me something I want to see, I'll sit there all day and watch it if you're entertaining me. Yeah. But the home run and strikeout alone is just not entertaining. But no. when guys are stealing bases and and the pace of the, the game is is quick and there's this daringness. I, I was doing uh, an interview with, with our good friend, Dayton Moore. Yes. Yeah, and we talked about it. You remember we talked yes. about Lorenzo Kane scoring from first base right. on a single in that ALCS championship game against Toronto. Yes. I mean, it doesn't get more exciting than that. That's exactly it, it, right. Yeah, and, and we need that to meet back in the game again. But, you know, well, it's, it's just... I would argue, yeah, I mean, and I would argue that, that it's also cheapened the strikeout and the home run, which were so great when they weren't <laughs> happening every minute of every day. Right. I mean, that's, that's, you know, a, nothing used to be more exciting than a strikeout in a key moment, yeah, but no. when there are 44 of them every game, you know, <laughs> it begins to lose a little something. All right. We, we, we're running out of time, but I want to hit you with, with uh, since you brought up Tampa and by the way, one thing about Tampa that certainly you didn't see in the Negro leagues was seven pitchers to get through nine innings. You wouldn't no, no, see no, that. No, 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 you didn't see that. Yeah, <laughs> as a matter of fact, most of the Negro League teams didn't have seven pitchers. They didn't have seven pitchers. <laughs> I mean, you, you, had to, you had to pitch Satchel and Hilton every day. I mean, come on. So, all right, but what are you seeing? I mean, I, I know you're you're really digging Tampa Bay. At the moment that we're talking, they're up 3-0 uh, with, a, with a chance to wrap it up tonight. 
Uh, the Dodgers surprisingly down to your Braves, to the, to to the Braves, Steve. You and, and, and I can, I'll be honest, I'm torn here to some degree. I am a lifelong Braves fan. Right. But obviously, I'm a big Dave Roberts fan. Oh, sure. And, and I'm a huge Dusty Baker fan. Yes. And, and, and so, you know, you kind of want to pull for them, but it's hard for me to pull for them when the <laughs> Braves are in there. And, 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 and so, but no, I, I thought that Atlanta. Uh, I like the way they play the game. Now, their pitching has been, I think, even more exceptional. It's been incredible. Because starting pitching has been good. I thought they had done a great job of building the back end, you know, particularly of the bullpen. Uh, They've been lights out. Now, I hope that they didn't wake up the Dodgers' bat the way they kind of finished the end of that game, (laughs) uh, that 8-7 to game. You know, all of a sudden, those bats woke up again. And so, you know, it's going to be interesting to see if this young team if they can stay in the moment without the moment getting too big for them. I think the experience that they got last year has probably better prepared them for this. They lost some heartbreaking games to the Cardinals last year. And, and, and so, yeah, I'll be curious to see how, how they hold on. Well, they got, but, you know, look, and I actually really, you know, I feel the same way as you do. I mean, there's, there are a lot of guys on that. Die. I want, I want, I want it for Clayton Kershaw. I want it for, for Dave Roberts. I want, there are a bunch of guys on there. But there are a bunch of great guys on that Braves team. Oh man, too. they are they're, really, they're really team. great guys. They are a fun team to watch with yes. with Albies and, and you can't Acuna. you can't get better than Albies. I mean, no, as far as the joy he plays, the joy yes. they bring to me, that's Negro Leagues baseball again. Yeah, and, and, and as you know, that's what the Negro Leagues took to those Spanish-speaking countries. And, and so it's great for me to see those athletes play that way with that joy. It probably rubs some people wrong as it did the major leaguers when the Negro leaguers came in. <laughs> exactly it right. wrong, but so what? <laughs> well, that's look, I always say that people are like, oh, in my day, in my day, Reggie Jackson was playing baseball, right? Reggie, <laughs> you, you, you think Reggie, you, Reggie might have showboated a little bit. Pete Rose, has there been a bigger showboat than Pete Rose? That's I, what I'm I, I know. I don't, you know? I don't like when people start talking about it that way. Bob, as always, so great to have you on. We'll, uh, we'll bring you back on happier things. Maybe we'll bring you back, uh, when the World Series starts rolling around, we can start talking happy stuff instead. Well, that, of, uh, that that you know is always great to catch up with you, man. We got a lot of great things happening here at the museum, and so you know, anytime, anytime that there's a spot in the lineup for me, <laughs> count me in. We're bringing you back. We're bringing you back. All right, thank you, Bob Kendrick. All right, Joe, appreciate you, man. The presenting sponsor of today's show is Tops.com and Tops Project Seventy. Tops is celebrating the seventieth anniversary of its very first baseball card design with a new program that pushes boundaries while also paying homage to their heritage. Founded in 1938 as a chewing gum company, Topps released their first baseball card set in 1951. Now, seven decades later, Topps has teamed up with 51 artists and creatives from around the globe to revisit and reimagine 70 years of Topps' most iconic baseball card designs through a year-long program called Project 70. Each artist will select their own MLB players and top designs from any year to craft a unique story. Ever wanted to know what Babe Ruth or Mickey Mantle would look like in a 1980s Topps design? Or how about Fernando Tatis Jr. in the 1950s? Now you can. Three new cards launch daily all year long on Topps.com and are only available for 70 hours before they're gone for good. While you're there on the lookout for special cards, each card drop includes rainbow foil editions numbered 1 to 70 randomly inserted into each card's print run as well as one of one gold frame edition given to a lucky purchaser. 
exclusive artist proof editions numbered to 51 featuring a silver frame are also available for purchase for every single card but hurry as those sell out shortly after each card is launched so look head to tops.com to learn more about project 70 and to check out which cards are live right now